I'm not sure why I don't begin a sermon like this almost every week. But, as we look around, it seems as though the world is exploding with sin. It's seemingly gone crazy and lost all restraint. Terrorists hijack planes and fly them into buildings, killing thousands in our lifetime. More recently, they board a train armed with all kinds of guns and ammunition, trying to kill everybody in the train, apparently. Fortunately, their plot was thwarted. But still, what what possesses people to do this stuff? Kids enter schools or movie theaters with guns intent on killing as many people as possible. A girl, locally, in our area, just recently, said she heard voices and drove to her parents' home and killed her mother and stepfather because voices told her to do so. I just heard this one, like last week. Did you know that women in New York City are now legally able to walk around basically naked, topless? It's legal in New York for a woman to go around without clothes. Amazing. Legal. Acceptable. Yeah. To who? A website for adulterers where they join with the specific intent of sinning in secret. Life is short. Have an affair. Life is short. Repent before you go to hell. But this is just abounding. A disgruntled newsman in the middle of a live broadcast goes and kills on the air another broadcaster and her cameraman and in the process uses his cell phone to record as he's shooting. This is madness, craziness. And maybe the top of everything is we have an organization called Planned Parenthood. And I can't even say what they do because of the children that are present. But it is beyond moral belief. Selling parts of murdered kids. It's madness. It's sin out of control. These things ought not to be. And I believe that in part, at least in part, Much of this sin that is out of control can be traced back to, attributed to the fact that behind the sacred desk there is no more preaching of the Word of God 
or at least it's few and far between and rare that men are warned of the consequences of their sin. That God is a just God. And that as a just God, He will not allow such sin to go unpunished to the individual and perhaps even to the nation that allows it and even promotes it. You know what's so sickening about that Planned Parenthood thing is that our government condones it and protects it and gives your taxpayer dollars to even pay for it. You think God will not judge such a land that does things as that? I fear that because of the lack of preaching of the Bible and hearing from the pulpit what God actually says, including that men will stand before Him in judgment for their sins, that He will condemn the guilty and indeed consign them to eternal hell. I believe that because of the lack of that, sin is abounding in our day. And yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of the wickedness and the abounding of sin, we come with a message of forgiveness. That the worst of sinners, that every single person involved in the things that I just mentioned, the worst of sinners can find forgiveness. In Christ. That is our message. That is our hope. That there's forgiveness for sinners. Because we're all sinners. None of us is unguilty. All of us deserve the consequences of our sins. And yet, we know sins forgiven. Through Christ. This is what we have been seeing in our study, the fundamentals of forgiveness. We saw, first of all, in the essence of forgiveness, the fact that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. And we're currently seeing in the, under the broad heading of the existence of forgiveness that the God of the Bible is a God who is long-suffering, compassionate, and gracious, and a God who forgives sins. We're looking currently at what we call the alacrity of God's forgiveness. That means His willingness. I actually was reading in some uh, biography, I believe, and saw the word alacrity. You know what it means now. Willingness, eagerness. The alacrity of God to forgive. And we saw Four wonderful texts in the Old Testament that show God as a God of forgiveness of sins. He does not mark iniquities or else we would not stand. He is a God that says, come to me. Your sins, though they are scarlet, will be white as snow. Yes, God is shown to be, even in the Old Testament, a God 
of forgiveness. And now we're looking in the New Testament at Christ and His alacrity to forgive. And we have seen several passages in the New Testament of our Lord Jesus offering forgiveness for sin in the Sermon on the Mount as he was teaching against the Pharisees, saying that they were such sinners for saying that he was casting out demons by Beelzebub in the midst of that. He says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. That's amazing. We've been seeing these texts of our Lord Jesus with the author of forgiveness given in the Gospel of Luke where he says that there is pardon from God for your sins. And then we saw him most recently last week speaking to those who were what we called known sinners. And we looked at two different women. Today we're going to look at a man. But two different women who were quote-unquote known sinners, and yet in each case, his willingness, his alacrity to forgive their sins. Now today I want to look at a few more texts, and I want to finish up this whole area of the uh, alacrity of God to forgive sins. And as we have been looking at some wonderful, well-known what we might call major texts. Today I want to look at another and close by just briefly looking at a few other things. But I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles at this time, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 11. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 11. As we see here, forgiveness and the great offer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look first, if you would please, at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Profound words. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a tremendous text of great encouragement to us all. And what I would like to do for most of our time today is to look at this text under several aspects and open it up, not 
completely. It would take several weeks to get to everything that our Lord says in this passage. But I want to look at several things with you this morning. The first I want for us to consider is the reason that men would come. The reason that men would come to our Lord. And he says here in verse 28, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. Weary and heavy laden. Now, I believe the King James Version translates that word weary as labor. And you may have heard it as labor and are heavy laden. But let's take a look at the, at the word in the Greek. It is kopeao, and it means to grow weary, to become tired, to be exhausted. So it is the fact or the thought that you toil, that you labor, and you are weary from your efforts. Now the translating it labor, as the King James does, gives people perhaps a wrong impression, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But it isn't so much the labor as it is the weariness from the labor that our Lord is speaking about. So you work and you work, and from that effort you become tired, exhausted, weary. Now the next word that he uses is a compound word, Heavy laden. Heavy laden. It's one word in the Greek. It is fortizo. And the word is basically to place a burden upon someone or something. To load up with a burden. It is a person who is then under the weight of that burden. So you load one up with this heavy burden and you are then feeling the weight of it. You're under the weight of a heavy burden. Do you happen to see where pilgrims or where John Bunyan got the picture of pilgrim having the burden on his back? This is it. This is the picture. Having a burden And you're under the weight of that burden. Now here's what Jesus is saying. He's not just talking about the fact of your life. Because I've told you often that Jesus spoke many times and was speaking to the multitudes who were those who had a difficult life. Life was difficult for most of the people that Jesus was speaking to. Think about what life was like then. You work, 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 and then you die, basically. There was not a whole lot of fun going on in first century Jerusalem or first century Israel. They were under the oppression of the Romans, and life wasn't easy. They didn't get sick days. They didn't get vacations. They looked forward to the times when they would go to the temple for the feasts, the Feast of Booths, or to the Passover. They they looked forward to those days. They looked forward to the, the Sabbath. They would take off on the Sabbath. But other than that, it was life, working hard, without much reward. They were poor, and they were therefore downtrodden. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. 
He's not just talking about those who were uh, downtrodden. And this is where that confusion over the fact that King James translates that word labor and are heavy laden, because some people might think that he's talking to those who are working hard at sin. Now, that's a picture of Isaiah chapter 5. Some of you in your daily reading are in Isaiah, and you look at chapter 5, and woe to those who labor at sin. Call evil good and good evil right in there. And so you might think, well, he's talking to those who are laboring hard at sin, working hard at iniquity and filled with iniquity. No, no, no. That's not who he's referring to. He already mentioned them if you look back to verse 25. Jesus said, I praise thee, O Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. That would be the wise and the intelligent. Who are the wise and the intelligent? The wise and the intelligent are people who go ahead and sin and sin and sin and labor at sin. They're working for their father, the devil. They are righteous in their own eyes and they don't even feel their sins. They want nothing to do with Christ. Would have been most of the Pharisees, most of the Sadducees. They were the wise and the intelligent. The righteous. And remember, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he's not talking to them. Those were the righteous. One has said, hypocrites give no concern to Christ. So that's not who he's addressing. Those that Jesus here is speaking to are those who knew their hearts. So when we read here in verse 28, as you look at the text, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. He's speaking to those who knew the burden of not just life, but their sin. They knew the burden of their sin and they felt it. They were weary from their sin and this heavy burden of sin. They felt the weight and the burden of their sin. You know, there are men who have supernaturally become convicted of their sin. Yes, there are those who want nothing to do with Jesus, who never feel the burden of their sin. But there are those who feel the burden of their sins and who are supernaturally drawn to find forgiveness and ultimately they find that forgiveness in Christ. This is where I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 19 as we see this picture this time of a known sinner who was a man, Zacchaeus. Luke 19. As I said, he was one of those known sinners because the text tells us in verse 2 that he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. You know how much the Jews hated tax collectors? Whoa! You couldn't be anything worse than a tax collector to a Jew. You know why? Because he was a Jew. He was one of their own. And he took their money, money from his own people, and gave it to Rome. 
gave it to the Romans. He collected taxes for Rome from his own people. And what they would do and how it usually worked or often worked was that a tax collector was required to collect so much tax from the people, let's say 10%, and anything they got beyond that went in their own pocket. So if he could get 20%, 10% of it went to him. So they were extortioners, cheaters for their own personal gain. So he was a known sinner. He was hated by the Jews. And now here, something supernaturally draws this tax collector to Jesus. Verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus, who Jesus was. And he was unable because of the crowd For he was small in stature. We often talk about the fact that there were crowds, hordes of multitudes following after Jesus. So you could see, here's this guy trying trying to see Jesus. And he can't see over the people. He can't get through the people. He can't see. So even though he's an adult, he climbs up into a tree to see Jesus as Jesus would come by in front of him. Great picture of what men who are drawn by the Holy Spirit might be willing to do to hear truth, to see the Messiah, to behold Jesus. And so he goes up into this tree and and he's looking down and, and here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus. He's coming. Jesus is coming. And what happens? Jesus stops. Right, right there. And and he looks up. And he doesn't say, you, hey, you, what's your name? Calls him by name. Jesus knows every one of you. Jesus knows every one of you. And some of you have heard the call of Jesus as He has called you by name because you felt the burden of your sin and had to find relief, to find rest, forgiveness. Where can I go? Where shall I go? I will go to this Jesus. He has been teaching and preaching forgiveness of sins. And so he climbed up this tree. Jesus looks right up at him and calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down. For today I must, look at the text. Today I must stay at your house. Must. It's part of of the eternal plan of God. You know, sometimes people have, I believe I've got one somewhere, maybe more than one, plaques in your home that say Jesus is the unseen guest at every dinner and hearing every conversation. Do you know that if you're saved, that's true? And even if you're not. But if you're saved, Jesus comes 
to your house. It's part of the eternal plan of God. I must stay with you in your heart, in your life. That's what a Christian is. One who is called by God and has God take up abode in his house, in his very bosom. Now look, verse 6. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Now when they saw it, who is they? When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This is worse than that prostitute. This guy collected taxes. And so they all grumbled. Who are they? They're the ones that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. The wise and intelligent. The righteous. They grumbled because he had gone to be at the house of a man who was a sinner. A sinner. And what was Zacchaeus? Exactly what they said he was. A sinner. He was a sinner. And we find out that Zacchaeus knew exactly who he was. Zacchaeus knew how he received his gain, his wealth. He knew who he was, for he says in verse 8, as he stopped and said to the Lord, and he goes on to say, Behold, but before we talk about that, I, I like to believe, and there's, there's a reason to assume that this is what happened, that Jesus called Zacchaeus to come down Zacchaeus hurries and responds. And Zacchaeus is going along with Jesus. And where were they going? Where were they headed? Where did Jesus say he must go? To Zacchaeus' house. The text tells us that Zacchaeus was rich. So maybe what kind of house did he have? A nice house. So they're all going, he's going to stay with a sinner. And I like to think that he got to the house and Zacchaeus, Lord, this is my house here. It's big. Got all the stuff. Got the cars, chariots. Got all the stuff, plasma TVs. Is that, is that the most flat screen? What, plasma, is that any good anymore? I don't know. But they've, he's got all the stuff. And look what he says. Behold, Lord. Half of my possession I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. And he had. And he did. And so what is this? Repentance. He is supernaturally drawn. Supernaturally drawn. And we know that that's the work of the Holy Spirit to see Christ, climbs up a tree, does anything that he can to see Christ. Christ calls him by name. He responds. He goes and he repents. This is a picture of biblical salvation. Zacchaeus repented 
because he knew what kind of man he was. And what happens? Verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Salvation. I want to ask you again. What is salvation? What? We, you know, we always use the word saved and salvation. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Salvation has come to this house. And if you are a Christian here today, salvation has come to your home. Salvation has come to your heart. You're saved from the wrath of God. And what brings that about? Forgiveness of your sin. This is a picture of who Jesus is talking about. Back in Matthew chapter 11, as he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. They're weary of their sins. They know who they are. They know that they're sinners, as Zacchaeus knew that he was a sinner. Weary and heavy laden. I'm tired of this burden of sin. Oh God. Have mercy on me. You know that there are multitudes. Who want nothing to do with Christ. There are multitudes who want nothing to do with His church. They hate Christ. They hate the Bible. And they hate you for following Him. They mock Christians as being ignorant for believing the Bible. They mock Christians for not believing in evolution and science. Last I heard, it was the theory of evolution. Now it's no longer a theory. It's proven science, even though it isn't. But they hate us. They want nothing to do with us. They want to be left to their sin and go to their website for adultery. They want to be left to their sin and kill Jews and Christians. They want to be left to their sin. They want to be left to their sins. And profit from the murder of children. You know that there are multitudes like that. But however, in the kind providence of God, there are also multitudes who are drawn by His Spirit. Drawn by His Spirit to come and see who this Christ is. And if they have to climb a tree to watch Him go by so that they could possibly see Him or hear something from Him, they will do it because they are being drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are millions who are being drawn even today as there were perhaps like those millions who went to the fields to hear Whitfield preach the Word of God. Why did they go? 
drawn by the Spirit of God. Some perhaps weary of their sin. Yeah, sure, some just went because it was a, uh, an event. But many were saved. And so many had gone because they were drawn by the Holy Spirit to see or to hear Whitfield preach the Word of God. Or like the multitudes who filled Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. They didn't go for a show there. They were very simple in their services. As Whitfield was out in the fields, they sang a hymn or two and Spurgeon preached. Didn't even have an organ in the tabernacle. They sang and Spurgeon preached. And multitudes came to hear the uplifting and encouraging and biblical messages brought by this man, drawn by the Spirit. Or could we say possibly even those who would come to a humble storefront church to hear God's Word when they could go to huge, comfortable growing and going churches all around the neighborhood. But they would come rather to hear the truth of God's Word, possibly to hear something that would change their lives. God draws men. And this is Jesus here in Matthew chapter 11 saying to them, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Come to me. That's where you will hear the outward call from the Word of God. Come to me. And I say to you that this is why it is vital for us to preach God's Word, to warn men of their sin because I believe that the absence of this has brought about the absence of men seeing their need to even come to Christ. The fact that they're not being told that they're lost and sinners and in danger of the judgment of God has led us to a society that seemingly has gone crazy in sin. No one seems to fear God or His judgment. Because they are not being warned, they do not feel the weight, the burden of their sin. And so we need to preach. They need to hear, and we need to preach the Word of God. All right now. That's the reason that they would come. Because of their weariness and their burden, they would come. Now let's turn and quickly look at the one to whom they would come. Our Lord says, come to me. Come to me. The one to whom they would come would be Jesus. Come to me myself. 
the incarnate Son of God, the divine Son of God, come to me. Verse 27, he says that no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. And some people might worry, what if that's not me? Jesus doesn't stop there. He says simply, come to me. Yes, he is sovereign. But yes, he gives this gracious invitation to men who feel their burden, who are weary with their burden of sin. He says, come to me. He will not ignore you. He will not turn you away. Come to me, he says. And yet in our day, coming to Jesus has been replaced by coming to this church. You must come to our church. Rome teaches that theirs is the only true church. And if you are not a part of our church, you cannot go to heaven. You must come to our church and do our rules and do our work and that's the way you get to heaven. You must come to this specific church. You know, there are a number of churches actually that you might not be aware of that teach things such as that. I believe the Church of God teaches that. You must go to their church. You must be baptized with their baptism or you will not go to heaven. There's a number of places like that. You must come to our church or it has been replaced not only by going to the true church, it is just to come to any church. Millions of people believe that because they go to church, because they attend a church, they will therefore go to heaven. That's not coming to Jesus. That's going to a building. And yet people believe that. Well, I go to church. I'm a member of the Lutheran church, or I'm a member of the Episcopalian church, or I'm a member of the Methodist church, and I go to the church every Sunday. I'm there. I go. And so I'm going to heaven. That's not an indication that you're going to heaven. That's an indication that you're religious and you belong to a social group known as a Lutheran church or a Methodist church or an Episcopalian church or a Baptist church. Because the evangelicals and even the Southern Baptists have replaced coming to Jesus with coming down the aisle. Come down the aisle. Make a decision for Jesus. As if that is the same thing as coming to Christ. And I know that in many cases, or at least in some cases, that does result in genuine conversions. Perhaps some of you here in this place were converted that way. In a religious service where you did come forward. And yes, indeed, in many cases, that is Uh, A genuine experience for some. But I tell you, based upon history and upon my own experience, the vast majority of those people that come forward in Southern Baptist churches are still lost. 
There's no evidence of any change in their life. Except maybe they go to church. But the vast majority don't even do that. You know how many people in a Billy Graham crusade who they claim got saved when they came forward wind up actually attending a church and being a vital part of a church with changed lives is? The percentage is minuscule. One or two percent. This is what has replaced come to me. It's come forward in a church. Now you may come forward, that's fine, but if you don't come to Jesus, it's nothing in terms of your salvation. Come to me, Jesus says. The man, not the church. The Savior, not the preacher. The Son of God. Not a social group. Come to me. I hesitate to say, but this is my own personal salvation experience. I thought that I was a part of a church. One of the, uh, those churches I've mentioned, I thought that that was what I was. Until I read the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit caused me to see from the Word of God that whatever I was, I was not a follower of this man. I might have been a part of a religion, but I was not a follower of this man, Jesus. Come to me, he says. Come to me. Have you come to Jesus Have you actually gone to Him to find rest for your burden of sin? Not did you join or attend a church, but did you go completely, personally to Jesus? I must move along. Next we see not only the um, reason that they would come, their weariness and burden of their sin, the person to which they would come, which would be Jesus, but the purpose for them to come, as he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The purpose for which we come would be rest. Rest from what? Not a nap. You can go home and take a nap. You can take your retirement nap every day. That's rest. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about sleep. It is relief from that weariness, that burden of sin. It is rest and relief from the burden of the weight of your sin. And what is that? Nothing less than the freedom brought about by forgiveness of sin when that burden on your back rolls away. That's the rest. When the burden rolls away. 
It is nothing less than the forgiveness of your sins. It is only as a man or a woman knows that their sins are forgiven that they will find true rest, true peace, that peace that passes all understanding. Only as your sins are forgiven will you find true rest. And that is resting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I ask you this morning, have you found the rest in Christ knowing that your sins are forgiven? If you could only see what I see when I stand here, And I start to make those applications. So many start going like this. They don't want to look at me. They turn to the side. Have you found the rest for the forgiveness of your sins in Christ? I must move again. Finally, the proper response to his call. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You find rest in Christ, but the result of that is that you repent from your sins. You take His yoke upon you. As Zacchaeus said, I give half. Four times as much. He repented of his sins. He took the yoke of Christ upon him and found rest. The yoke of sin is hard. It brings the weariness and the burden. The yoke of Jesus is light. And it brings joy and rest and peace. But you must have it. There is no such thing as salvation in Christ that does not result in a changed life. I'm not saying that it results in a perfect sinless life. But it does result in a changed life. One who now strives to learn of Him. To follow Him. One who has the yoke of Him will have a changed life. So don't tell me that you have come to Christ. That you found rest for your sins. But you're not living for Him. But your life has not been changed by Him. Because that is an oxymoron. If you have been changed by Christ, That is an indication that you have found rest in Christ. That is an indication that you have come to Christ. True Christianity comes with responsibility. You take His yoke upon you. Now I told you that I must touch on just two more things. Both will be quick. If you would please Turn in the Gospel of Luke again. This time to Luke 
23. We have seen Christ preach forgiveness in his first sermon. We have seen Christ tell of forgiveness even in his condemnation of the Pharisees and scribes. We have seen Christ teach that you have the freedom or pardon his judgment and its forgiveness of God if you come to him. We have seen Christ preach forgiveness to known sinners and we have seen this great offer of forgiveness of Christ from Matthew chapter 11. And I have one more. Forgiveness seen even to his murderers. Chapter 23 in the Gospel of Luke. If you would please look down to verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. This is the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. There on Golgotha, as he's raised up with spikes in his hands and feet, the crown of thorns upon his head, in pain, stripped of clothing. You think Rome would leave clothing? They don't want you to be modestly clothed. They want you to be humiliated. Humiliation disfigured from the beating, in the midst of pain. And what does he do? Verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them! For they do not know what they are doing. In the midst of our dear Savior's pain, suffering, humiliation, Father, forgive them. Even in his agony, we find his alacrity to forgive sins manifested. As he even calls for God to forgive his murderers. Oh, sinner, do you think that Christ will not forgive you if you come to him? if he would even forgive his murderers who drove the spikes into his wrists and his feet, do you not think he would forgive you? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest from your sins. I will forgive you even as I forgave these who drove the spikes into my wrists and my feet and hung me on a cross in all humiliation and pain. Come to Him to be saved. I want to close this portion of our look at the existence of forgiveness by asking you to turn the page to chapter 24, the Gospel of Luke. As we see forgiveness being central in the preaching of our Lord. We saw that in the very beginning of His ministry, He called on men to repent. And that there was indeed this existence 
of the forgiveness of sins as preached by our Lord. And now we come to the very close of his earthly ministry, shortly before he ascended back into glory. And if you look at Luke 24 down to verse 45, we read that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. It's from the scripture. And he opened their eyes to believe it, to see it and to believe it. And look what he says next. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. What are we to preach? Repent and be forgiven. That's the message. To all of those who are steeped in sin that I mentioned in the opening illustration, there is forgiveness. To all of you who would be here today to hear of Christ, drawn for who knows what reason, for anyone who might hear this message on the internet, steeped in your sins, we preach, repent, and be forgiven. There is forgiveness, and Christ is eager and willing to forgive. And He will forgive those who come to Him and ask, Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. I feel the weight of the burden of my sin. I am weary from it, O Christ. I come to You. Forgive me. The message from the scripture is there is forgiveness in Christ to those who come. I pray that you would come today. Let's pray.